Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. My guest on today's show is Mario Therian. Senior Vice President of External Portfolio Management at Canadian Asset Manager Caisse de Dupont et Placement du Québec, CDP. CDP oversees 270 billion Canadian dollars, that's 200 billion in US dollars, for the pension funds in the province of Quebec. Mario joined CDP in the early 1990s after completing his master's degree in finance, and he's worked there ever since. Mario started out at CDP managing a tactical asset allocation strategy, created an internal global macro hedge fund, and later built and managed the team responsible for investments in external public market funds. Starting from scratch, CDP today oversees $20 billion of external manager allocations. Mario's team serves as CDP's window to the world of markets, strategies, and managers across the globe. Our conversation dives into the Canadian pension model, which has gained prominence in recent years for the strong performance by funds north of the U.S. border. The model incorporates internal management, risk control, partnership, and collaboration. Drawing on a quarter century of experience, Mario shares his window into this little-known world of investment success. I hope you like the show, and if you do, please join the 14 people, uh, that's 14 out of 40,000 downloads who have written a brief review on iTunes. I'm told if I can convert just 1% of the listeners to write a review, a whole pot of gold awaits at the end of the rainbow. I myself have listened to hundreds of podcasts, 
and only written a review once, so the ask may be a tall order. But if you do find your way there, I'd greatly appreciate two more minutes of your time. And thanks in advance. Please enjoy my conversation with Mario Therian. Mario, thanks for joining me. Ted, it's a pleasure to be with you today. Let's start with how you first got involved in investing. You know, I, I guess I was one of the lucky guys because it all started, I did my BA in economics and uh, after my BA, I went to see for a job that was like just in the 90s or early 90s and there was nothing out there really to, to really have uh, an interesting uh, challenge. And I went, went back to school, did my master's in finance, and I had the good fortune of having this teacher in the last semester that used to work at, worked at Case Depot, was looking for a young analyst building up their tactical asset allocation group. And so we were 25 people in my class. We all sent our CV, but I was the first one to reach Montreal. So we just lived outside of Montreal, two hours south. And from there, you know, the rest is history. I came in the case, 1992, worked as a financial analyst, building up all of the tactical asset allocation effort, which was in those days really sort of avant-garde, if you like, think of it, uh, using derivatives to alter the asset mix of a pension plan in the early 90s. We did uh, a lot of model buildings around the larger asset classes and everything. So I did that for about three, four years, building all of the infrastructure with the managers. And then they gave me a bit of capital to start managing a small book of options. And from that standpoint, started managing some people, some analysts, and things were really evolving. I was really, I was in charge of tactical asset allocation at CDP. So lots of interesting responsibilities. In the late 90s, uh, CDP also allowed me to build a hedge fund. So that was a macro hedge fund, which- in Internal. Internal, yeah. which was sort of, ran pari passu with what we were doing for the larger uh, asset portion. So did that, was, was a great experience. Uh, we actually, we were able to raise a bit of outside money in those days as well, mm. which we did, which really sort of made me grow up quite rapidly. And then 2002, three, uh, CDP was involved in a large restructuring as, as a result of the financial markets, bad tenure, I would say, especially in Canada where we had the technology bubble uh, kind of affected us a little more, I would say, in terms of our index. And from that standpoint, they asked me to build this fund of fund platform, which was, you know, nil in those years. And from that standpoint, really building up a team from ground up that would be able to evaluate and assess external managers specializing in hedge funds. So we, we built up from zero to $5 billion in about three years. We have a multi-manager platform. And from that standpoint, been managing since 2003, the external hedge fund platform of CDP. Fast forward, financial crisis. We have a few scars from that crisis, obviously, like everybody else. And in 2011, MyScope enlarged into all of liquid asset classes using external managers. So essentially, my role today is I run a group of 19 people, and we are in charge of all of the allocations within external managers from long-only equity, emerging markets, edge funds, sovereign debt, so different types of strategies, everything that's involved with liquid markets. And that, that encompasses about $20-plus billion out of $270 billion of CDB's total assets. So Think of us as a the, the internal fund, the fund of CDP. So we do everything internally from manager selection to portfolio construction to ops DD. We're structured as such. We've been doing it for years now. It's a, it's a model that's where it works pretty well. Yeah. So let's take a step back. I mean, in the last, right, probably since the crisis, yeah. the Canadian pension funds have increasingly become known as the sort of forward-thinking thought leaders yeah. that to some extent, the endowments were sort of as Yale came into prominence. What is different about the Canadian pension funds in how they think about this challenge of managing a very, very large sum of money? Well, first of all, you have to think that uh, the big eight in Canada is now over $1 trillion. So it's that's a lot the of big eight pension big, funds. Big eight pension plans, yeah. So, trillion dollars. Wow. so that's a lot of money uh, you know, in, in a few ends. And Canada at the same time is a very small market. So- we're a big fish in a small pond, if you like. So 
in the early 90s, if you remember, uh, Ontario Teachers was like at the forefront of this movement where they would try to find ways to diversify from and Canada. for them, diversify away from Canada. From Canada, yeah. because we, we were becoming big enough so that, you know, we had too much idiosyncratic Canadian risk, whether it's fixed income, sovereign credit, or equity. So this this brought a, a, about a lot of changes, I would say, whether it's in governance, whether it's usage of different derivative products, whether it's diversification across asset classes. And, and this is, I think, where it all started, actually. And, you know, we follow suit and... Other plans followed suit in Alberta, and CPBW was created at the later stage, PSP in Montreal. I think that one of the first things that, that you see with this model is that they want to do more internal than external. And I'm the external guy, so I, I, <laughs> I, I kind of pick up the, the, you know, sort of the, the rest. But essentially, we, we try to do more internally. And we will sort of access the external strategies or asset classes where we don't have a core competence with, with external managers. And that's exactly how teachers and, and us, for example, have been uh, doing things over the years. CDP has more than 90% of his assets managed internally across all asset classes. The other thing also that the Canadian pension model encompasses is uh, the capture of these the liquidity premiums. So I think that we've been doing more and more over the years and more into illiquid versus liquid markets. And this, this was a result of, of the good governance, I would say, relationship with board and, and for them to really understand that this is where we have an edge is on the horizon or the longer term horizon that we have. This also brings about being uh, able to be contrarian. So when you have long-term money, when your board understands what you want to do in the long term, you can have the capacity to be probably a bit too early. So that's, that's actually a, a very interesting feature as I've seen over the years. The other aspect of Canadian model also is that Canadian sponsors have not been afraid of using derivatives, whether it's for the use of pure leverage whether it's to mitigate or manage risk or to access foreign asset class, for example. And I, I can talk about that because we in, in the 90s, this is what I was involved mostly with. The other portion that's really important also is that the risk management function is usually in-house. And that's, that's especially since 2008, I think that you know all of our peers in Canada and even ourselves, we've invested a lot into technology and staff also to really have a good overview of risks in-house. And finally, and not the least, is uh, the ability to attract talent. I mean, this is, a, as you know, a business where you need to be able to attract talent. And I think that over the years, we were able to, to have our constituent understand that compensation was a real issue if you wanted to attract real talent. But at the same time, I think that Canadian plant sponsors were able to design compensation scheme that were aligned with longer term results. So that's that's really important. So, I mean, today in 2017, I think that, you know, the new power brokers, the pension plans, the family offices of the world, the endowments have real capacity of attracting some very smart people. And that's been sort of a, a big change or a, a big uh, difference with, for example, some of our U.S. peers. So let's let's start working backwards on that, <laughs> on this question of talent. Is the compensation structure different such that the expectations of someone talented compared to, you know, Bay Street is U.S.'s version of Wall Street. Is it hard to compete with Bay Street talent I think it's, you know, in the long run, when you think of it, I think that we're trying to take away the volatility attached to compensation. So when you have a more of a longer term sort of formula, if you like, well, first of all, there, the formula is, is twofold. There's a part of formula that is all about you being a good citizen, right? Uh, working with your colleagues, making sure that you're, you're making a difference within the organization. So that's really important. There's the results of the plan as a whole, making sure that we all work for the same PNL, and then there's your portfolio, and what what's been you know put in place in, in various plans is that 
over the long run, if you are sort of beating your objectives, whether it's an absolute or a a relative, I think that the share of that profit that we've been sort of making over the years has been increased to a point where people feel that, you know what, yeah, you can make more money on Bay Street for three, four years. It's like, you know, do I want to play for a hockey team for four years making a lot of money or signed for a longer term contract that makes that gives me more assurance that I'll get paid for a long term. So I think that when, when people NPV sort of that, that, that payout, they see that it, it's not such a bad sort of proposition, I would say. Yeah. And, and a little bit more on risk management. So what, what does that mean when you frame out a focus on risk management? What are the risks you're looking to manage? I mean, before talking about risk, I forgot to mention that earlier. One thing that really Canadian model is is espousing, I would say, is more and more focus on absolute return. And what does that mean? I mean, it's not absolute return in the context of a long, short manager that has a low beta. I mean, we we all know that sort of any Anglo-Saxon pension plan has a, has one big risk, which is risky asset risk. That, that is coming from real estate, equities, and private equity. I think that absolute return meaning that in the you know making taking decisions in the long term, investing in businesses, investing in skills that in the long run will give you uh, a chance of accomplishing these absolute return. Which for us, you know, we we're targeting just just a little north of six percent for our clients. So so that's that's the portion. So making sure that the investment beliefs and mindset are all sort of focused on this absolute return mindset, thinking outside the box, thinking away from the benchmark. I think that these are the things that culturally over the last five, six, seven years, especially since the financial crisis, we've been really, really focusing on. So that's, but that's not easy. It's not easy because, you know, a manager that's running sort of a long only book in Canada or in the U.S., has this tendency to look at the benchmark, right? And say, well, I should own more of this and more of that. So in terms of your question on risk, I think that risk has different meaning. Of course, we have all of the tools and and, and the measures like the VARs and the stress tests, and, and, and we try to do a good job at this. And we try to really think sort of holistically across the, the pension plan. And we've done we've done a great job over the years to really making sure that we have a, a good handle of the on the risks, you know. And there, there's other types of risks also. I mean, we, um, for example, we're a Canadian investor, so we, we invest in the foreign markets. So that that risk is important. Is important. We're actually in a in a currency. Our client has a currency that's sensitive to commodities. So we have to think about sure. these things. Other types of risks that we've been paying a lot of attention to, geopolitics. One area that Canadian pension plans have been focusing a lot over the last five, six years is EM, right? Whether it's illiquid or illiquid markets. So uh, what is the cost of doing business in Brazil or Colombia or, you know, uh, doing a, a toll road in Mexico? So these are sort of the qualitative risks that are more difficult to assess, we had, you know, to really look into. And that plays into, especially for these these illiquid assets, it plays into making sure that you partner with the right people. I think that's the first line of defense. And this is where due diligence and, you know, background check, triangulation, operational due diligence, we do a lot of that. We're much more intense than we were prior to the crisis. So, and, and, and finally, other types of risks also is we need to make sure that we're liquid enough for our clients. So we have to do this arbitrage where illiquid assets might be attractive. We have this sort of client that has a perpetual life. But at the same time, we have to make sure that we have decent liquidity in, terms, in times of crisis and we need to pay uh, for the pensions of our clients. There are so many interesting aspects of the kind of core belief system at CDP. As I took out last year's annual report, you see words like strategic partnership, patience, flexibility, collaboration. And I'm assuming this isn't just because of my stereotype of Canadians being nice people. (laughs) So as you walk through this, what what does patience mean 
in investing. Uh, we all talk about being long term. We all talk about being patient investors. How does that play out at CDP? That's a good question. I, I think first of all, what what you've read in in our latest, for example, latest annual report, I think is, I mean, I'm biased a little bit, but uh, these are really things that are brought together by the leadership, uh, the leadership of Michael Sabia, the change of culture uh, following the financial crisis have been quite, uh, quite amazing. It's been, it, it hasn't been easy again because, you know, let, let's not forget we're a pension plan, but uh, these, these are the things that I can say today really work, but we still need to really nurture. Patience in, in the context of a pension plan is, is being able to sort of shy away from, so, so, you know, the, the, the fads, shy away from sort of the trends, the momentum that can build up into sectors, into some stocks. Patience also means what? Means un- underperform. Underperform in times of speculation. And this patience, and patience is from top to down. It's, it's on our board. It's the governance and every, it's, it's everything. So this is how it plays out. And I would say that today we have some, you know, some senior guys that they, they really sort of apply this with, with, with us, and I apply this with my group. And patience is to procrastinate, is to be attentive, to make sure that we have deep knowledge. We've spent a lot of money just investing into research. We have an equity research group that has been developed over the years, which I, get, I, I think gives us an edge on, on some of our peers. And... But that's, you know, that's sort of, it, it all goes back to patience. Patience means building the group, sort of building the culture, being patient, not sort of jumping at every deals, and, and to the risk of underperforming. And then two other ones, strategic partnership and collaboration, oftentimes, as capital allocators think of that in terms of external managers. But as you said, most of the assets are internally managed. So w- what is that form of collaboration and strategic partnership? I think that one thing I should have had earlier on on the Canadian model is that what you see in Canada is everybody uses external managers to a certain extent. But I would say that what we've been very proactive about is to say, you know, we approach a large organization in private equity, real estate, some hedge funds, infrastructure, and say, we're going to be investing money with you, but help us better manage the rest of our plan. Can you help us better manage the rest of our plan? So so we're doing a lot of that. So it's, yeah, it's investing with groups that are disciplined, passionate, and creative. But at the same time, people that are, you know, respectful, people that are willing to help us better ourselves in, in a, a very generous way, I should say. So, So we've been doing a lot of that. And, you know, a way for us actually to, we could talk about fees with external management, but a way to sort of reduce sort of that absolute return of fee for us is to do these types of co-investments, I would say. Yeah. And to be able to also, I mean, what's the hardest thing I find with strategic partnership is to find the right metrics to evaluate the quality of that partnership outside of saying, well, this guy's made 10% annualized for you know five years. I mean, that's sort of the hard data, but sort of the soft data, how do you evaluate if it was a good relation, a strategic relationship? Because we all talk about strategic relationship, right? And we say, oh, they're going to be helping us sourcing deals, but what have they really done in that regard? So I think that's one of our challenges to really measure, find sort of the, the metrics to evaluate these relationships. When you take a step back and, and think about this big challenge of there's you know, $270 billion to put to work, in the U.S., we see asset allocation strategies, right? We see a certain pocket in U.S. equities, international equities, emerging market equities, yep. fixed income, private equity. The strategy as espoused at CDP is great projects, great companies, which is a very much a business owner mindset, complete, very Warren Buffett-like, very different from the asset allocation structure in a lot of pools of capital in the U.S. Um, that requires deep conviction. It requires a real understanding of what are quality assets in a real economy, quite a different skill set. And it seems like it's a very bottom-up approach. You've been through 
different iterations of CDP and different models. So the current one of really owning great assets, how do you blend that thought process of bottom up yep. with such a large pool of assets that there has to be some thought to the top down? Yeah, we always think about sort of running big money like that. You need to have a great macro view and being underweight stocks or bonds and you know, a hedge or not to hedge. I think that we still we, we, we're still very aware of these macro risk factors. But I think when you when you look at the core of CDP, and there's always small pockets that are not necessarily investing in great companies, but rather investing in skill or hedge funds, for example, or other types of strategies. But when you look at the core of the strategy has been really sort of devised so that we, we, we should build from the bottom up we should make sure that we have a certain level of diversification. And we achieve that by investing in all of these asset classes that you've mentioned earlier. And, and yeah, we think, I think each of the managers, they think about portfolios and not only a portfolio of stocks, but, you know, they try to think holistically about, you know, what is it if we, we had some financial sector with energy, for example. I mean, there's there's a minimum sort of thought process in that regard, but I think that ultimately, if we're a long-term investor, if we acquire knowledge, if we invest in that research bench, if we're patient, if our board is following us, let's just find these companies that will compound. And that, that's been sort of the big shift, I would say. We've created this portfolio over the years. That's a, it's a, a quality portfolio that invests in mainly U.S. multinational companies. And that's, that's been pretty much the start of that that objective. I would say also that if you look at other uh, asset class like uh, real estate, has all be, always been pretty much like that. I mean, the real estate group, which is the oldest group of CDP, I would say, has been has always been having sort of that value slash quality type mindset, private equity to a certain extent, and now we brought this mindset to more of the liquid markets. So whether it's equities or or credit. So we're doing a lot of that same work in credit. We become a provider of, of, of finance for a lot of these companies. We accompany companies in their growth. But at the same time, we, we really sort of shake all of these businesses, making sure that we understand them, which I think is, is a big change from the past where research was important. But today it's, it's like, I think it's, a, it's an edge. It's one of the superpower that we have, I believe. As you apply that, so... How many how many investment professionals are there at CDP? Geez, it's over a hundred. I mean, I don't have the precise number. I should know that, but you know, uh, CDP is is north of eight hundred employees, counting all of our uh, different groups. It's a big shop. We now have offices around the world, and this is towards the quest of doing more business in EM. So we've opened offices in in Singapore, in New Delhi. We have offices in London, Mexico City, uh, Washington, also Paris. So we've been quite active on that side. And the idea is not to just have a a sort of an address on the street, but also find the people over there that will be sourcing these deals. That's, I mean, that's the other area also that separates the Canadian model where, you know, CPPIB, Ontario Teachers and now PSP in Montreal are all opening offices across uh, the emerging market uh, countries. So when you roll all of it up, is it about half the assets are in Canada? I think it's less than that now. Less than than half. Yeah. And how do you think about that sort of asset allocation? So how much should be in the home country where the liabilities are? How much internationally? I think it all starts with ultimately what is the, the return objective? And then it's doing all of the work. What is the expected long term expected return? in different asset classes, and then you can break it down to countries, regions. Obviously, it's also a function of where you have the ability to generate value-added. Where do we have an edge? Uh, we have a large Canadian equity portfolio. We've been, we've been here in Canada for many, many years. We think we have a bit of an own base advantage there in Quebec also. So I think it's a function of that. Obviously, you want to build a portfolio that's robust through the various cycles. 
And you want to make sure that ultimately, you know, Canada, again, going back to the fact that Canada is a small sort of market, I think it's 3% of the MSCI world. So uh, over the years, the clear trend was to divest from Canada and to have a more diversified portfolio. I think that the big effort, I would say, in the last four years is to go see where the opportunities are. And we've been sort of doing a lot of work in the uh, emerging market world from the illiquid to liquid markets, from sovereign debt to public markets. We feel that growth is going to be there. We need to be close to these markets and uh, we, we can bring our expertise in these markets and, and probably thrive as much as we did with developed markets. So I had a conversation with Larry Koshard from University of Virginia. We were talking a lot about the structure of the investments you make, both absolute and relative performance. And the ability of the decision-making unit, the governance board, to suffer through a challenging time, which might be just uh, you know 2008, but it also might be that you're so different from your peers that you look bad for a period of time. So as you lay out the asset allocation, how much attention do you pay to the other Canadian plans and what the structure of you know their portfolios look like? We, we spend a lot of time, all of us have our own network with our peers in each of the asset classes. We obviously, we're not, you know, we're not so many big institutions in Canada, so we follow what the others do more and more. But what we come to realize, I mean, if you go back 15, 20 years ago, there was more of a compete, I would say. I think nowadays people are getting to know more and more the differences in mandates for example, CPPIB was a much younger fund who's still getting lots of inflows. They have a reality that's much different, for example, from the Ontario teachers, who's a much older demography, who have to devise a strategy that's really focused around asset liability, absolute return, making sure that you increase the probability of making that four, five, six percent every annum. So I think that there's more of a knowledge, even financial press, I believe, is sort of making more of these nuances where they know that, you know, if the performance of XYZ is lower, there's always explanations underneath that I would say are well taken. It seems like that's better understood in Canada than the constituents in the U.S. And it doesn't even matter, right? The, the troubles that Harvard management had some years ago with the disconnect between the alumni base and the investment team and the board. Yeah. Is there something to that alignment across ultimately your pensioners, the governance board, and the investment team that works well? That's a good question. I think, I mean, I, I'm not the specialist in the U.S. Obviously, we hear about stuff. But we, um, I think when you look at that in Canada, the, the, the alignment, is the alignment much better? I mean, the last time really we had a hostile period that lasted more than a week was in 2008, 2009. It's been sort of a quiet time, I would say, for the the 60-40 sharp ratio. I mean, if you look at, if you if you went back to 60-40 sometime in, in 2009, it was a great, the greatest trade of all, right? So, so we'll see how this plays out in the next round of, of hostility in markets. I would say in general that most of Canadian plans seem to have a better diversification than they had before. They seem to have a better handle on risk. They seem to have been able to communicate, you know, their their strategy, their beliefs. I mean, I can talk for ourselves. We've been we've been spending a lot of time with the clients, really make sure that they get what we do and making sure also that they understand that you know, uh, there might be a time or a period that's going to be more difficult. So, but, you know, we'll see when, you know, when you have a couple of bad quarters and you're really underperforming, let's say both on the relative and absolute, there might be a, a different situation. But I, I feel that this time around, perhaps we, we, we probably have a better success on that part. Yeah. Well, I'm fascinated at what that communication looks like today, right? Because as we've spoken about, more and more of the portfolio at CDP is owning assets. Yep. Asset prices are ostensibly fully valued, maybe in some instances high. Yep. 
and you're managing a, a battleship, not a fleet boat. So even if everyone agreed, oh boy, we should take some risk off the table, it wouldn't be easy to do that. So what, what is that board conversation like today to prepare for the possibility of a rough patch of water sometime between you know now and smoother seas ahead? I think it goes back to you know the, the statement you said earlier, investing in great businesses. I think that we invest in we have you know less line items than the past, and I think that boards have a better handle of the concentrations that we have in the portfolio. They have a better understanding of their valuation and how robust they will be because they know I mean they know that in in sort of a bad period these things will lose money as well. So they have a better understanding of that. There's always a discussion around macro. There's always a discussion around macro. I mean, let's face it, you open you know, uh, the media today, there's a lot of focus on valuation of markets. Markets are gonna, we've never been, been overextended since you know, the 2000 year bubble. So I think there's always a discussion like that, but I think that where people feel very comfortable is that this, these businesses will probably le- um, lose less in a, a reset, if you like. So that'll be, again, interesting to see. Investing more money in, li- in illiquid assets also mitigates sort of the optical risk, if you like. The optical risk. <laughs> because, you know, these assets are not revalued every day. So I think that, I mean, at the end, I think that's also important because why people behave in a certain way when they manage portfolios because they, they see their PL every day. Yeah. And, you know, they have biases and they, they do the wrong things at the, at the wrong times. So one of the things I'm curious about is what degree of concentration you can actually get. So hmm. roughly half of the assets are in equities. And there's different pools. There's your quality bucket. There's Canada. There's private yep. equity. But if you looked down to the line item, how big of a percentage of all of CDP would a, would a large position be? Yeah, it, it, it depends. I mean, all of the portfolios have a a concentration limit that can uh, eventually be uh, surpassed, but it has to go through an exercise of justifying it and doing all of the analysis again. I think ultimately, I mean, we could have, I mean, for at, at the CDP level, we probably have stakes that are in dollar or absolute are above a billion dollars. I mean, easily. I mean, just take the equity portfolio, for example, and again, it, the, the larger the absolute return that you have invested, I think that the more work has been done, the more of an edge we have in, in terms of the information, understanding sort of the, the business, knowing the CEO, the company, uh, their culture. So it's all, you know, conviction is all about, is, is a function of having the knowledge yeah. and being able to communicate that knowledge. Even then, a billion dollars in the context of CDP is what, half a percent, maybe even less. Yeah. So it's not, re- is it, how much of it is a conviction-based portfolio versus an aggregation of yep. individual convictions and you get diversification across the activities. Yeah. Well, yeah. if you, you have to go back to all of this, the single mandates or portfolio. So for example, our Canadian equity portfolio is about $23 billion dollars. And you have a portfolio manager that runs sort of a, an absolute mindset type strategy. So more, more conviction, more concentration, but it's still a portfolio. So yeah. there's a level of diversification. And she, I mean, let's say she would have a 2 billion or 10% position in her portfolio would still amount to a small amount for yeah. the case. So I think it's, it's, it's at the individual portfolio level there might be some strategic investments that we do in more private equity-like type situations or real estate. I mean, we have some sizable investment in real estate or infrastructure for that matter. But it's, you know, it's all managed in the context of these single portfolios, I would say. So you've described the external manager piece in part as almost a windows on the world of yeah. the best of what you can see externally that you then can bring yeah. and enhance the internal effort. What are some of the lessons or your favorite lessons that you've learned uh, from an external manager that, that you've then 
incorporated or helped incorporate internally in some of the portfolios? One of the things that I've all, I, I will always like to say to my staff is that, you know, we, we work with about 60-ish external managers in six different type of strategies, I would say, from hedge funds to value investing to relational investing to sovereign debt. So what I say to my group of, of guys and gals that follow all of these relationships is that we need to make sure that we're the window to the world. So we need to see how each of these relationships can help us better manage various areas of CDP. So we're, as such, we're not passive. We're, we're doing a lot of work in terms of connecting people together. And, and you know, what, what it did over the years is that it, it allowed us, first of all, it demystified the role of external managers, right? Because external managers used to be sort of seen more as a, well, we need some, right? And I think now the group I run at, at, in Montreal is really doing great work in terms of broadening the network of all of our internal managers. Uh, so that's, that's, that's really important. I think also people really feel how important network is important. So if you're managing a, a portfolio of stocks, yeah, you visit companies and you might see one of your peer here and there, but having a network outside of these guys and being really being able to tab the, the full ecosystem. So, so our, our role is really, yeah, to bring sort of the, the best talent out there in the niches that we're targeting, but also making sure that we can import a lot of that market intel, best practices. It could be, so, you know, we've, we've done a lot of work with our external, uh, some of our external funds thinking about currency management. How do we, currency hedging, for example. So we've done a lot of work there. They were influential in the way now we look at currencies, whether it's edging an illiquid asset in Brazil or just edging our U.S. dollar exposure globally. So I think, um, I think that that's been a great realization of what we've done over the years. It was not always easy because you can bring sort of the horse to the water, but you can't force the horse to drink the water. So it took a lot of sort of work and communication on our side to, to say these external managers are men and women like us and they have a story to say and they face the same challenges and yeah, they may have made, they may have made more money in the past, but you know, but they still can share with us. But this also influences us a lot in terms of who we decide to invest in for the external portfolio. So it's not it's not about getting sort of the best athlete out there. I think it's a combination of getting sort of disciplined managers, smart managers, also creative managers, but people also that. Uh, are somehow generous with us in terms of sharing their experience. So, so I, I stress this a lot to our team, and I think we've done a, a good job, and, but it's, it's something that's never finished. I imagine somewhere along the way in the last couple of years, particularly since the crisis with the restructuring, there has to be some discussion of active and passive investing, particularly when there's such a large pool to manage and the notion is owning great companies and compounding capital. What does that debate look like internally? That is a great debate. I mean, we could, we could talk for hours about this debate, especially at this, this time in this environment of markets. I think that ultimately we believe in active management, but we also believe in, in longer term horizon. We can arbitrage that in some ways. I think that we feel that active management in the more liquid assets has become more and more difficult. And we see that. We see, you know, we see the, the impact of AI. We see the impact of the quantitative process. We see the impact of, of hedge funds, for example. So we feel that it's just getting more and more difficult to actively beat the market, especially in the more liquid asset classes. But at the same time, I mean, the jury's still out. I mean, are we in a secular change in terms of is finance going to be Uberized <laughs> like, uh, or money management being Uberized, right? So I think it'll never be Uberized to a certain extent. I think that, you know, there's, there's been some people talking about sort of the, the mix between quant and fundamental. I think in the future, the managers or the money managers that will sort of grow the best will be the people that will marry both discipline 
and and I, it's it's going on and it's underway right now. So and this is this is actually making this is actually keeping me up at night in in various hedge fund strategies. Actually, how we how we invest in the future with more market neutral tri- type strategies, yeah. for example. So that I think that's that's quite important. Great. Well, let's turn to some closing questions. First, what is your favorite thing to do that is a complete waste of time? <laughs> you know what? I, I listen to the other podcasts, so I find find the response very interesting. But I have to say, I, I'm I'm an older dad, so I have a son that's six, just turned six years old. So I think that making Lego Legos with him, Lego building blocks, is is something that. So he's six. And but I, I'm cheating a bit, so I'm buying boxes for 12 plus years old. So that makes me participate with him quite a bit. And I'm sort of the the he's the builder, and I'm the architect. So that's fun. <laughs> uh, what was your favorite sports moment, either as a participant or a fan? I, I, I got I got so many, but I have to say, and that's very that's from actuality now is seeing. Well, I, I just missed. All of these Sundays where I would rush back home at four o'clock to see the last nine holes of Tiger Woods closing in on yet another tournament. I, I miss that profoundly. He was he was a great, great athlete. So we, we haven't seen that for a while. And this week was actually a bad week for that. You know, I, I go back to the 80s so I could talk about Larry Bird and yeah. Magic Johnson. But uh, the, the other guy that really gets me is uh, Roger Federer. I mean, the last... Uh, Australian Open, 35 years old, was was quite moving in the in the wee hours of the night. So, yeah. What phrase that your mother or father repeated over and over again has most stuck with you? My mother used to say to me in French, because I'm French. Well, I'll say it in English. In doubt, abstain. She used to say it in long longer. And I never realized how much this would come back to haunt me hmm. because a few of my scars have been from not listening to that. And, and money management brings you a lot of opportunities to go against that. So I think that that's probably, that, that is something that struck me when I was a kid. Yeah, that's great. What is your favorite book? The books that have influenced me quite a bit over the last uh, I like to, I like to read biographies, but the books about where we, you can make a link with the analogies between sport and and uh, money management. So I'll start with Moneyball, which was a great influence to me. It was like a eureka moment in terms of how you build portfolios. And then from Big uh, Big Data Baseball that you introduced me to, yeah. uh, Ted, and uh, and I read recently uh, the Cubs Way, which is sort of the 2.0 version of Moneyball with uh, Theo Epstein, which I really sort of like because it's it, it brings quant and qualitative empathy. I just finished A Man for All Markets, the the story of Ed Torp, which is actually making me think. A lot faster now about the you know the future of equity market neutral quant and uh, seeing him how he went through blackjack and and then blackjack there was an inefficiency he wrote a book and the inefficiency went went away and you know applying this to to markets and obviously he, he managed some money in the seventies as well so but I, I liked sort of these books where uh, you know you can make analogies like that yeah Theo Epstein just gave a graduation speech at Yale that people haven't caught it. It is just fantastic. And people who don't know the inside story of what happened on game seven of the World Series. But part of that was there was a rain delay and the Indians had just caught up to the Cubs. They were going into extra innings. And what he talks about is how Jason Hayward, who was one of the Cubs players who had had the worst season had so stuck with the team and the unit that he was the person who brought the team together and said, hey, we can do this during this rain delay. And that in most cultures, or most cultures of most organizations, that person who's underperforming is sort of cast aside or they bury their head, but they all stayed together. It's just a fantastic speech. And I, I can't wait to read this that, book. The, the last chapter is all about what you just said, yeah. and which is sort of you know great. 
but uh, it's a great book. Great book. I love that book. Yeah. So you've listened to these, so you know what the last two questions are coming. What do you know now that you wish you knew 10 years ago? Probably to procrastinate a little more. Obviously, you know, we, we feel that we have a lot of pressure to invest and, you know, quantity is important, size. Take more time in terms of doing all of the work that needs to get done to to invest. Sort of go to bed on an idea and let let the night do its work, right? Do more of that, especially I would say when when in my thirties, I would say in my in the early forties. I, I think I'm applying this more and more today, but that's that's something I mean, I, I needed to take decisions back then, right? So it was take a decision. Now to take more time to relax on on a concept or an idea, I think makes sense. And does that flow through personally as well? I would say yes. I would say yes. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes in the family, it's it's hard to apply because I have uh, I have a family that is is full of energy. But you know, I'm I'm sort of the the older guy, the wise guy that you know is is sort of having people take a little more time. But yeah, you're no, it's it's I'm trying to. It's it, it always seems more harder personally, I find. Things are more difficult to apply personally than professionally yeah. sometimes. All right, we're in your waning days. You are ninety five years old. Yeah. Sitting in a rocking chair, procrastinating as much as you possibly can for what's to come. Yeah. Uh, what advice would you give yourself today? I think it, it has to be family related. I think it spending more time. We we kind of get into this grind of working a lot and you know traveling and forgetting about sort of the the moments with with kids with wife. So I think that's that's something that probably I would do more is and I know it's not easy because it's very. Uh, the compete is very difficult. The grind is difficult. But spending more time, family is everything. Family is, to me, is, and, you know, I, I'm lucky that I have a coach and wife that reminds me. <laughs> so, yeah, that would be it. Mario, thank you so much for the Thanks, time. Ted. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you've liked what you've heard, please write a review on iTunes or Google Play to help others find out about the show. Have a good one, and see you next time. 